You're listening to the Straight to Video Podcast with Rob Lane. What's up and how's it going? As always, I'm your host Rob Lane and thanks for tuning in to the Straight to Video Podcast. First up, I want to thank you all for making the start of 2021 the best couple of months yet here on the show for both listens and downloads. The numbers really are looking great, so it's awesome to know that the podcast is reaching more and more people out there. On today's episode, I'm happy to welcome my friend Chuck Shute, who is the host of his own podcast based out in Arizona, USA, called, quite simply, The Chuck Shute Podcast. Both of our shows tread similar paths and we've had the occasional matching guests, so if you enjoy this show, then please head on over and hear what Chuck is doing, as I'm sure you'll enjoy the talks he has there too. Chuck has a great interviewing style and really goes all in deep with his guests to get some great stories, and a lot of his shows have been picked up by the likes of huge music websites such as Sleaze Rocks and Blabbermouth, as he does such a great job of unearthing stuff you've not heard from his guests. What you're about to hear is simply a super fun chat with two guys who share a mutual love of music and bands, so if you're from a similar background then I'm sure you'll enjoy this. We talk about Chuck's teenage years in Seattle around the time of the huge 90s music movement which potentially could have proven tough for an avid Metal Edge reader. We chat about his first concerts and then his eventual relocation from Seattle to his new home in Arizona and the launch of his successful podcasting adventure. If you want to find out more about Chuck's show, then simply search the Chuck Shoot podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. And you can also find Chuck on Instagram at Chuck underscore shoot or on Facebook at Chuck Shoot podcast. Hope you all have fun listening and hopefully find another great podcast to add to your list. So here we go with my straight to video talk with Chuck Shoot. Like I, I, I don't know. I don't. I haven't really seen you other than your cartoon picture. So <laughs> you look good, man. You're, you're you. young and you're healthy. And I don't know about young. <laughs> looking young. I don't know. Forty six. Are you really forty six? Yeah. Dang, you don't look forty six. Yeah, hanging in there. I think it's because I've got no kids. I think that's the reason. Oh yeah, that's my. I don't have any kids either. I think that helps us. Well, congratulations on a hundred episodes, dude. Thank you. That Paul Gargano one. I was hooked on that one this morning. Right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I know. I, like everything he's everything he's saying. He's like, he's like, oh yeah, this is what happened with Jerry Miller and all. And I'm just like. Oh, what, what, what happened? Like, <laughs> I never knew the story. I never knew. Yeah. I just remember I was a, a big metal edge fan as a kid. And then one day, like, it was like, Paul Gargano is the new editor. And I was like, wait, what, what happened to Jerry Miller? And like, I didn't know. And then like he dropped off and then the magazine kind of dropped off. And so, yeah, I never really knew what happened. So it's kind of cool to hear that. It sounds like he's one of those guests, like straight away, like this is going to be really easy. As long as I've got a few decent pointers for him, he's just going to roll with it. Yeah. I heard him in a couple other interviews. And so I kind of knew that he was a great story. I mean, because that's what he, you know, did for so long as he told stories via the magazine. So he knows like how to do good interviews and stuff like that because he did so many of them. It's great. I kind of lost track with Metal Edge a little bit in the mid 90s because um, it did start focusing more on heavier stuff. Yeah, it started to turn into like Marilyn Manson. And that's kind of when I 
I kind of dropped off, but then I would always kind of check every now and then to see if they had a new issue and if it had like the warrant or something. And then, yeah, I didn't. So I like the Metal Edge era where the covers always fell off. (laughs) Yeah. That's the way I describe the eras. Right. Before they changed it. So you currently live out in Arizona, but you're from Seattle originally, right? Yes, that's right. Yeah. How was it growing up there? Was you kind of like in the heart of the city or is it like a suburban area? No, yeah. I was like in the more a suburban, it was a little town called Issaquah. It's about, well, I'd say like 25 minutes away from Seattle, but like in the traffic times, it's more like an hour away from Seattle because the traffic gets so bad there to go anywhere. It takes a long time to get into this, especially into the city of Seattle. You're talking like LA, California vibes. It's up there. Yeah. I think it's in the, I don't know. They're in the, they're on the top 10, like Dallas and Seattle and LA and San Francisco. It's yeah, it's bad. So how was it growing up there? Was you a happy kid? You know, I was like a nerd in high school and middle school. I mean, I was like a rocker kid, but I wasn't like the cool rocker kid. I was like the dorky rocker kid. And so, you know, I was listening to like Motley Crue and I guess this is not a national thing or probably not, definitely not into uh, the UK, but they would call heavy metal, anything that wasn't alternative grunge, because that's what was popular at the time. They called that butt rock. So like Van Halen, Warrant, but also like Megadeth and Anthrax, that was all called butt rock. So I was like, they'd people would call me like a butt rocker because I wear like Metallica shirts and White Zombie, but also, you know, like Motley Crue and Guns N' Roses and stuff like that. So That was not necessarily the cool stuff at the time, but I was really into it. I really liked it. And it was weird growing up in Seattle during the height of grunge. And I I liked grunge too. I liked Pearl Jam and Soundgarden, Alice in Chains, all that stuff. But I wasn't like as into that as I was into like metal. So what kind of time was it you was getting into? Was it literally like around 1990 or just after? Yeah. So I was like, when I was a kid, I was more into like, um, like MC Hammer and like Vanilla Ice. And so, you know, I was a kid and I was in, it's like poppy rap kind of stuff. And then I started getting into more like Public Enemy and NWA and stuff into the harder rap. So I was always into rap. And then in eighth grade, I dated this girl. And one time we we're hanging out and she's like, she only had like one CD with her. And she's like, oh, this is all I have is a skid row slave to the grind. And I was like, yeah, I don't, I don't care. I'm hanging out with a girl. I'm excited to be with a girl. So she puts that on and we're hanging out. I'm like, what is this? This stuff is like, this is good. I like this. This is crazy. I, I never thought I liked heavy metal, but I like this. This is really good. And that's a heavy album, dude. Yeah. That album really changed my life. I was like, oh, I think I like heavy metal now. And then I got into, so I got into Skid Row and then I got into Guns N' Roses and Metallica and, you know, all that stuff from that one album. I started really getting into it and started reading Metal Edge. And, and I guess I just almost like totally didn't even really like rap anymore. I was just so into rock at that point. I don't know if it's just rock music or if it's music in general when you find it around your formative years it just consumes you it really does it's all i was interested in it was really weird i was just you know i wore the shirts i'd go to the concerts like i said i read about it in the magazines i watch headbangers ball like i just it was like my number one and we didn't have as much content like now there wasn't podcasts and and websites that you could go to and read about i mean i probably would have just never left the house if that was the case like i get metal edge and i mean i'd, I'd read that in like a day i just read the whole thing especially because i only heavily got into music a few years before then so you're talking like what you're talking like 91 92 kind of time uh, yeah. So eighth grade, it was 92, 91, 92 that year. Nirvana and that stuff was like, it was starting to take off right in that spring. But it was a cool time because in my opinion, I liked how there was like all that stuff was popular at the same time for a short amount of time. It was like Pearl Jam, Nirvana, Soundgarden, Alice in Chains, Metallica, Guns N' Roses, Skid Row. It was all kind of cool and popular for a very short window. There was It was all at the same time. And I was like, that was really a great time, 91, 92. Definitely. I mean, I always think it's kind of cool because I, I I've always liked music and I always say I kind of got into hard rock through 80s movie soundtracks. Oh, 
Which ones? Well, the top two, without a doubt, are Top Gun and Rocky Four. Yeah. Best soundtracks, hands down. <laughs> okay, yeah, that's like a little poppier stuff. It's funny, I didn't really get into the poppier rock stuff. You know, I heard it as a kid, I knew the songs, I liked them. But when I was in college, they had these things called Sounds of the 80s. It was like Time Life, and you could buy it, you get a CD every month. And I'd start getting those, and I was like, oh, man, I remember these songs from the 80s. These are great songs. And then I started getting way more into, like, pop music, too. Yeah. Well, that's what the hard rock, which we like, is really. It's just pop music with heavier guitar, really. All the melodies and hooks are still there. It's still the same stuff. I feel like the older I get, the more diverse my musical tastes become. Like, I used to always hate country, and now recently, I like country now. So it's kind of nice. Country's kind of become the new melodic rock, in a way. I don't know what it's like over there, but what we get over it's very melodic rock based really and a lot of those guys are in that scene as well that's where all the la rockers moved to they all moved to nashville yeah no i know we went and visited there it's crazy and then yeah there's so many people that, that live down there and yeah it's kind of like a a fine line now between country and uh and rock are you a brad paisley fan i love brad paisley's stuff i don't know any of the songs off the top of my head but i bet if you played them i'd go oh yeah i've heard that before i mean he's a shredder he like does these country songs and rips out a solo and he, he's done hot for teacher Oh, really? Halen and his live set. That would be awesome. The guy's great. It's awesome. So you got any brothers and sisters or are you just an only kid? Yeah, I got I got two older half brothers, two younger brothers, and I have one older sister. Yeah, I grew up, there was the four of us. My two older half brothers didn't live with us, but yeah, the, growing up, it was the it was the four of us. So I was kind of the the black sheep of the family. I guess I, I still am. Why was the black sheep? I don't know. Like my, well, like my older sister and my oldest younger brother, I mean, they were like popular and kind of the cool kids and played all the sports, had all the friends, went all the parties. And I was not that uh, category. <laughs> so that's why I think I really connected with music. I go up into my room and, you know, these bands and like Metal Edge, I mean, those were like my friends kind of in a way. <laughs> like I would just like really focus on on that stuff. And they were, those things were always there for me. So I was like really into that. And there wasn't anyone else that was really as that much into that kind of stuff into music as much. So I kind of was like on my own for a lot of it. None of your friends shared similar tastes. So was they all into the popular stuff? You find kids here and there that were into that stuff. Like I, but it's funny because sometimes you're just friends with a kid because they're into music, even if it's not the same bands as you. Like I'd be, I'd be friends with a lot of skater kids who were into a lot of punk music, like really like obscure, like Black Flag or not, not the Black Flag obscure, but some other like more obscure punk bands. But they were really into that stuff. But we connect because we're both passionate about music. So that's kind of cool. So when you get you get into um, Skid Row, did you kind of track back onto the first album? And yeah, yeah? I kind of discovered all that stuff backwards, right? So like I got Skid Row, Slave to the Grind, Guns and Roses, Use Your Illusion, the Metallica Black album. I got all those ones first, and then I went back and got their old stuff. And I was like, oh, okay, like Appetite's pretty good too, I guess. And uh, Ride the Lightning, Master Puppets are pretty good. And yeah, the, obviously the first Skid Row albums is amazing too. But yeah, so like that 91, 92 is like, in my opinion, it's like one of the best years or eras of, of rock music like oh, yeah. so much stuff came out during that time you probably know this anyway but poison took alice in chains out on their first big tour oh yeah there's all there's all so it's funny i hear all those stories from a lot of those bands like tora tora was telling me like oh yeah like we were on the same record label as chris cornell so like you know one time like they, they wanted me to just like hang out with chris cornell and i was like that's so weird to think <laughs> about those bands like you know mixing but yeah back in the day like i said that year i mean a lot of those bands were there was a lot of crossover and then you know 93 94 it really became you know alice and chain soundgarden nirvana grunge cool and then everything else like i said butt rock or metal different worlds they can't mix 
you've probably heard me say it on the podcast in one or two episodes, but a quote which kind of hit home with me a while ago was somebody said, the best two years of any decade are the first two years of the following decade. And I agree with that. Like 1991, 92, were probably the best albums from yeah. all those hard rock bands were like putting out their best stuff just before right. everything changed. It's ever so weird. I know. It sucks because there's so many albums that came out in that era, like 91, 92, 93, or that, that didn't come out, but you know, that, that should have been bigger. Like there's a lot of the, what is it, like, uh, I think uh, Danger Danger. They had like an album that was supposed to come out. Oh, the cock Cockroach album. Yeah. And it's like, it's like, there's some song. I finally heard that just like more recently. Phenomenal, man. There's some really good songs on there. And there's a lot of those like quote unquote hair bands that put out some of their best work in 91, 92, 93, but no one's heard it. Kind of sucks. Where was you buying all your records from? Was you finding everything in bargain bins around that time? You, that's funny that you mentioned that. Yeah. Because definitely a lot of the music that I was getting into. Or was they burning it in Seattle? <laughs> Yeah, it was not popular. So yeah, you could find some pretty good deals. Uh, but yeah, I remember uh, going to the record stores, like Tower Records. I don't know if they had those. Do they have those in UK? Yeah, there was a big one in London. Oh, they did? Oh, really? That's awesome. I didn't know they were worldwide. That's cool. But yeah, there was a big Tower Records and it had the the videos and the books too. So I'd love, go- that was like, you know, you're like a kid in the candy store going to those kind of places or there's all the, there's all sorts of different CD stores that I, but also a big thing for me was the, I don't know if they had these over where you live, but the CD clubs where you'd, you know, you'd send in and you get like 10 CDs for the price of one. And then they try to send you one every month and then you just send it back. And and so you get those 10 free CDs though. And that, that was like a big, I think I'd signed up for a couple of those. Like, yeah, that's a good scam to get free music. Did you ever buy anything based on the cover alone? Take oh, for sure. Yeah. Well, yeah, you had to do that. So like, yeah, I mean, I talk about that all the time because yeah, when you're a kid, I mean, you can read about it in a, you know, a rock magazine like Rip or Metal Edge. Uh, you might see a video on Headbangers Ball or you might hear one song on the radio, but all in all, like if you're buying a full album, you're taking a chance for the most part. I mean, you don't know what you're getting. So you might have been a fan of the band or you might've heard that it's good. And so there was a lot of, of things. Like I remember Mr. Bungle. Do you remember that? Uh, band. So they, I, cause I'd see so many rockers wearing Mr. Bungle t-shirts. And I was like, what is this? Like Mr. Bungle. I keep seeing these t-shirts, like every rocker would have them, but I don't think I'd ever heard any like thing of their music, but I knew that it was a uh, Mike Patton from faith no more. And I love faith no more. So I just bought the album one day and I was like, Oh, this is like some weird shit. <laughs> I mean, I liked it. I think it took longer to kind of really appreciate the full thing. But, um, you know, at first I was just maybe like one or two songs, but then as time went on, I think I could appreciate more of it, but there was a lot of stuff like that. Like I remember I just interviewed the drummer from the Melvins and he played on, um, some of Nirvana's albums. And I remember he played on Assesticide. And I remember buying that album without hearing any of the songs, but I knew I was like, well, I like Nirvana. Maybe this will be good. And I think I just had some money that week and that came out and I was like, I'll check it out. So I bought it. And uh, that, I think that's my favorite Nirvana album. What was the kind of like the whole vibe for you being in Seattle and that whole huge scene that came from there? Was you able to get a feel for it or you didn't know any different kind of thing? You was getting into music. So you figured every city had that kind of thing. I don't know. I don't know how it was in other cities, but yeah, I just remember um, definitely a lot of kids liked Alice in Chains' Dirt. 
I feel like I heard that album so much. Like anytime I'd be hanging out with my friends or anybody, we'd go to a party or something, which didn't happen very often. Again, I didn't have a lot of friends, but if I did, like I remember hearing that album a lot, like driving through the parking lot at school and stuff. That was a really popular one. So yeah, a lot of kids are really into all that Seattle grunge, but I'm assuming that was probably throughout the country at the time. But yeah, it was weird kind of being in the heart of it. You know, I think it's probably a little bit more concentrated there, I would think. And again, it was really weird for me to be into to, uh, the butt rock at the time. You were the rebel. <laughs> yeah, kind of, but not like, yeah, I don't know. It was weird. Who were your favorite crossover bands? I know you mentioned White Zombie. I like so much different rock. I mean, I'm, we saw White Zombie in concert. We saw Anthrax. I remember going to see Ozzy, Pantera. You know, you'd have like, if you knew somebody that was a big fan and they, you know, they like I had like the one, one of my friends that I had, he was really into that kind of more the heavier Panteras and stuff like that. And also those bands toured. So it was like, hey, he's like, you want to go to see Pantera? I was like, sure. And they were amazing live. Well, Skid Row went toured with Pantera, didn't they as well? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I had to see Skid Row. They played this tiny little venue called the Moore Theater in Seattle. And um, I was really excited. It was like 95, I think. And I they were one of, like I said, they were one of my favorite bands, but I caught them right on the tail end. So I think that tour, the first, that Slave of the Grind tour had ended. I didn't get to catch them on that tour. So I had to wait till the subhuman race. And obviously there was a lot smaller venue at that point. So, but it was really still, it was amazing to see them. Yeah. I struggled with that album. I keep going back to it every few years. Subhuman race. Yeah. Yeah. So I had Rachel Boland. I interviewed him, which was amazing. It was like, it was so weird to me to interview him. I, I mean, it was just surreal. And he said, he doesn't like it. He doesn't like that album. He's like, yeah. He's like, I'm like, what, why not? I liked it as a kid. But he said, nah, we were kind of just, we knew it was over at that point. So we're like, we're doing the album, but we know like no one's going to listen to it because grunge had taken over so you think slave to the grind's a heavy album so human race takes it to another level right I think Slave to the Grind for me is like, that's kind of the level of heaviness that I really liked the most. Like some of the other stuff gets a little too heavy for me. It's almost like a classic heavy metal album, really. Yeah. When you listen to like old school Judas Priest these days, that stuff ain't heavy. It's quite melodic, really. And like Slave to the Grind was almost like a revamped version of that. Just great, massive songs just played with great aggression. I almost feel like there's a little bit of a, there's definitely some punk influence too. Like the way that they, it's not just you know, da, 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 like just speed metal, like Judas Priest, there's like this stop and start kind of stuff. Kind of like uh, the Guns N' Roses kind of has that same punk influences kind of in your face, aggressive. I don't know. I love that stuff. It just like, you know, gets you pumped up or at least it did for me. Guns N' Roses was your first gig, right? With Metallica. Yeah. Guns N' Roses and Metallica and Motorhead opening. Motel. Oh, wow. Yeah. That was pretty crazy. I, and I remember Motorhead, I didn't know really much about them. So I was a little kind of floored by like, wow, these guys are freaking heavy like I didn't and I didn't know any of the songs really so you know I just kind of wasn't as into Motorhead I heard that Faith No More had opened some of the other shows and I was hoping it was going to be Faith No More because that would have been I was more into Faith No More than Motorhead but now I can looking back now I can appreciate Motorhead a lot more I've heard more of their songs and stuff what do you remember about that gig like was it easy to get tickets because that tour was huge wasn't it yeah so I remember my buddy I just started becoming friends with this guy he said that he had tickets and I was I didn't really know him that well so I didn't know if he was like full of shit. I was like, oh, sure you do. But it was at this place called the Kingdom, which was huge. It's where the football and the baseball team would play in Seattle. So it's a big venue. Outdoor or indoor? It's indoor. It was indoor venue. And so, I mean, it's such a big venue that it, it would be hard to like sell it out. I think it might've been sold out, but it was probably wasn't that hard to get tickets because, you know, they had the whole general admission area standing and then all the seats 
So, but he actually got pretty good seats and we had a good view. And I mean, it was, it was definitely loud. Like you just don't realize how loud concerts are until you actually go to a real concert. You're like, oh, this is, this is loud. And I do remember, you know, Motorhead and Metallica, they were, Metallica was amazing. It was when James had burned his hand. So he was singing and they had John Marshall from Metal Church playing guitar. But then at the end, James Hetfield came out and he did play guitar for the last song. So that was cool. And then I do remember there was a big break in between Metallica and Guns N' Roses. Yeah, I was going to say, how long did Axel keep you yeah, waiting? Yeah, I, I do remember waiting like an hour or two, maybe at least. Could have been longer. And this is, we didn't have cell phones or whatever, right? So we didn't, we couldn't like plan our phones. And, and we're also like 15, so we can't get beer or anything. Thankfully, at least we had a seat because I can't imagine being general admission, having to stand for that long. That'd be a nightmare. But yeah, they, they came on and uh, it was cool. It was, I was a big fan of both those bands. So it was pretty amazing to see them live. Was you at school the next day? Funny. Yes, I was. Because I, I think originally the show was supposed to be on a Friday or Saturday, but then it, I think it got rescheduled because of the either the riot or James Hetfield's hand or whatever. But to my parents' credit, that my dad came and picked us up at like three in the morning in downtown Seattle, wow. which I can't believe he let me do that, but he did. And then I you know, went home, went to bed at like 3.30 or something, woke up a couple hours later and went to school. The cool thing was too, and I've been trying to search for this, but I, I don't think I could find it, but we, me and my buddy were on the we were on the local news. No way. Yeah. So they like interviewed us. And, uh, and so I, I don't even remember what we said. Said, but just something we were excited for the concert. And so like, I remember my friends like, Hey, I saw you on the news. I was like, Oh, that's cool. So, Oh, that'd be awesome to find that in the archive somewhere. I know. I think I had it recorded on this videotape and then recorded over. So I wish I would have saved it. Oops. What other bands did you get the chance to see around that time? Or was it later on as you got older, you got a chance to see like the LA bands? Yeah. Like in that time, I had a buddy that was more into the heavier stuff. And like I said, those bands toured and they would actually come to Seattle. So I do remember seeing Anthrax and White Zombie, Pantera, Ozzy. Yeah, I think the, oh, ACDC, they came. So we got to see that and another buddy that was was into them. So that that kind of stuff. But yeah, like the Bon Jovis and the Warrants and the that ship had sailed. Those bands were not coming to Seattle. Like I remember waiting and waiting, like that whole era, basically, they, they would never come. And then eventually, I think like 2001, Kind of, there was a little bit of a resurgence of that kind of music. I think there was something called the Rock Never Stops Tour, and it was supposed to be uh, Warrant and Vince Neil and, and a couple other like quote unquote hair bands, and they canceled it because they they couldn't sell enough tickets to Seattle. So that sucks. So I remember one time I finally um, this was like 2007 or something. I drove to Idaho from Washington to see Warrant and L.A. Guns and Firehouse at this random like you know, outdoor venue concert thing that they'd had because they just wouldn't come to Seattle. How was that seeing those bands? Did it hold up? It was cool. Yeah, but it wasn't. Um, and I think I heard you talk about this too. You never got to see Warrant with Janie Lane. So yeah. it was their other singer. It was uh, the guy from Black and Blue. Oh, Jamie St. James. Yeah, it was him. And it was all, they were all great. But yeah, it's cool to see that kind of stuff because that always kind of held a, a special place in my heart because that was kind of the first kind of music that I remember getting into as a kid. So yeah, it was cool to see that stuff. And now I've seen so many concerts living in Phoenix. And then like we drive sometimes to go see a band if it's, if it's in LA or, or Vegas, or we even drove to Denver to see Dangerous Toys because I was like, I really love Dangerous Toys, but they don't do a lot of shows. So if you want to see them, you got to kind of travel. Nice. Is there any bands who you've not had the chance to see? You got to tick off your list. Gosh, that's a good question. I got to think. Um, one of the big ones that I was really into right in that same time in eighth grade when I first got into music was Ugly Kid Joe. I did get a chance to interview uh, Dave Fortman and that was that was really cool. And I, 
he's a great interview. I would definitely, if you're an ugly kid, Joe fan, check out that interview I did with him. But um, I have not seen them live because again, they didn't really come to Seattle very much. And if they did, it was like a 21 and over show and I couldn't go. And then they kind of broke up. They Now they tour, but they do more like Europe and stuff. They don't come to the States as much. I don't think I saw them right back in the day. I think I saw them. Well, I say that we saw them with Bon Jovi in 95. So that's kind of just after they had the big hit. But then saw them with supporting Skid Row, strangely, in Nottingham. What? Yeah. Oh my God, what year was that? That would have been like a dream concert for me. I'll get my years wrong, but it wasn't too long ago. It was about five years ago, something like that. Oh, okay. So recently. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so not with Sebastian Bach. No. Uh, Johnny Solinger was still with him. Yeah. I thought he was great anyway. Yeah. But yeah, friggin' Whitfield Crane is one of the, hands down, one of the best front men I have ever seen. Really? See, yeah, that's what I always thought from what I'd seen, you know, videos of or whatever. And and just, I liked that band. I don't, I don't know, something about them. They had that, again, a similar kind of aggression uh, style kind of punk kids and uh but still fun yeah well. they had like a sense of humor too I, and i love like the car you know as a kid the cartoon mascot was really a big draw to me too i was like oh that's a cool like mascot i like that they opened for skid row and they said like oh we're going to do a new song and it started and whitfield was like right hands in the hair and right everybody do this and this is a brand new song which nobody knew they were supporting skid row and he kept them doing that throughout the entire song that's awesome respect dude they have a new album coming out i don't know when it's coming out but he showed me the uh the cover art for it which i thought was so, he's like yeah he's like don't show this to anybody i'm like whoa i get a like a sneak peek of the cover art of the new ugly kid joe i mean like if i could go back in time and tell my 14 year old self that that was gonna like it's just mind-blowing so i mean i'm sure you kind of experienced the same thing interviewing some of these guys like it's kind of like surreal sometimes did your music taste change over the years or have you always kind of constantly stayed super passionate about music and shows or has real life got in the way at any point i know it did for me for a few years yeah my music tastes definitely changed. Like when I was a kid, I was into pop stuff and then I got into the rap and then I got into the heavy metal butt rock stuff. And then when I was in college, I kind of branched out and I got kind of got more into pop music a little bit. I was like, oh, this is kind of cool. I like some of this pop. And I still liked, you know, the metal and stuff too. I've always still liked the, the heavy metal and things like that. And then, you know, like I said, when I got just more recently, I think I'm more into like country and stuff like that. You know, I, I think good music is good music. If I can find something good, I, I like all sorts of stuff. I like blues. I really like live music. So like if there's a band playing a cover band or a jazz or blues or something, I love that kind of stuff. Like, I think it's, it's great, but yeah, like it, you know, sometimes it wanes, like it goes through periods where I'm not as into music. And there's been years where I've just, you know, I got really into sports and stuff and following football and all that stuff. So, but yeah, right now, I mean, I'm just doing so many interviews. Like I'm kind of like really into music by, you know, having to do research and stuff and, and hear all about this stuff and having, you know, doing interviews like this where we're talking music. Where did you go to college? I went to college, a small little school near Seattle. It's about an hour and a half, two hours outside of Seattle called Central Washington University. Um, I don't know if we have really that big of a claim to fame. There was like a NFL quarterback that I don't know if you know American football, but John Kittner went there. You know, not too many famous people have gone there, but you know, I really enjoyed it. It was a small little school. I stayed there for my bachelor's and my master's. So I was there for like seven years studying and uh, I got really used to living over there. It was fun. You know, I kind of like the small town feel. I don't know if you live in a big city or a small town, but I kind of like that small town feel like you go out to the bars and you know, like every time I go out to the bars, I'd see someone I know. It was kind of cool. I, I like that feeling, but yeah, I had to move back. 
back eventually. What kind of led you to move into Arizona though? So like my brother, he went to ASU. So he came down here to go to ASU and my parents would, you know, come down to visit him or I don't know if it was to drop him off, but at some point they came down and they were like, oh, this is like a really not a bad place here. And oh, look at these houses are really cheap. So they ended up buying a house as kind of like a, a winter home or whatever. So they, they still kept their house in Seattle area, but they had a house down here too. So then I would come and visit. They'd bring us down for Thanksgiving and things like that. And then I started kind of falling in love. I was like, oh man, it's like really nice weather here. It's sunny and everything's so clean and there's no traffic and it's totally different from Seattle. Um, so I just kind of fell in love with it. And then around 2008, I just decided I'm going to go try living there. And I didn't know if I'd be there for like six months or I'd move back in a year. I didn't know how long I would last, but it's been 13 years and I love it. So when did podcasting enter your life? Was there any kind of inspiration or just downtime or just something you felt like doing? Yeah. So, I mean, I like podcasts. I mean, I like, or I like talk radio, like Howard Stern, Joe Rogan, um, you know, tons of, there's tons of stuff out there, but I, yeah, I remember uh, my cousin who uh, works at, a, he's a reporter at the local news station here. He started a podcast and I was like, oh, wow, that's cool. You, you started, a, I was like, do you have to like have a bunch of professional equipment or like, is that you're doing that through your news station? He goes, no. I'm just doing it. It's really easy. I'm like, oh, and he kind of explained, you know, the process for starting one. And I thought, oh, wow, that's like, that's really cool. Like, it's really easy to do that. I was like, I should start a podcast. I just, you know, and finally it took a while to kind of get it off the ground, but, um, you know, I finally started one. I started one with my buddy first. We did that for like, I don't know, a year and a half or something. Then we talked about, okay, we're going to branch out. We're going to, we're going to each do a solo show. And so, um, I, we had done a couple interviews on our show. We interviewed some people and I really liked that. I was like, oh, this is fun hearing about other people's experiences. I think we interviewed like an actress and a comedian and an actor and a singer. And I was like, this is like really fun for me. I like interviewing people. And it made sense for me because I was a counselor for 17 years in the school. So I was going to say, did you have any kind of journalism or something you could bring into it or techniques? Yeah. So as a counselor, you're taught these listening skills and, and asking questions and things and how to have, like do a counseling interview. But it's so different than doing like a journalistic type of interview because, you know, journalistic, like you're kind of more supposed to follow your curiosities. Like you're asking questions that you're curious about that you assume other people would want to know about too. But in the counselor, you know, background, you're supposed to, you're not supposed to do that. You're supposed to just let the client, you know, talk and and, and reflect back with them. And, you know, you're not supposed to be nosy and, and that kind of thing. So, but that was like my natural instinct. I was always like, oh, I want to know about this, but I'm, you know, I'm not supposed to ask. So, um, so it was a lot easier for me doing these kind of interviews, just using my natural instincts, I think. So yeah, so I branched out and, and I did the solo show. And like I said, when I first started, I was like, oh, I'll just do this like once a week or a couple times a month. And then, like I said, I think I kind of got like addicted to it. I just I was like, oh, this is so fun. Like interviewing these people, like I'm, I'm fascinated to hear what they think. And then, you know, when other people enjoy it too, that's even crazier for me because I'm like, I, I'm mostly doing this for myself to like, you know, to understand these people or, or hear their stories. So if other people enjoy it too, like that's amazing. Who was the first? person who agreed to do an interview with you where you thought like holy shit this is mad who you'd reached out to perhaps you didn't think would get back to you was there anybody oh my god there's been so many like i mean i feel like ever it just keeps getting bigger and bigger so like one of the i think the first guy that i interviewed for my solo show was um just a comedian that had come through the local comedy club and i, I talked to him 
in person about it. I go, Hey man, I do a podcast. I'd, I'd love to, to have you on if you, if you wanted to do it. Cause I, I thought he was pretty funny and I figured, Oh, he, he'll probably do it. He's not like, you know, he's not too big to do podcasts. And so he was a little reluctant at first, but I got him to do it. I think it went pretty well, but then, so then, and I reached out. So Mark Scott from Trickster, he, we had a mutual friend that I went to high school with friend in high school taught him karate or something. And so I think I was like his Facebook friend or something. And um, I just thought, well, maybe he'll do it. I don't know. Like I'll just, I'll ask him. And I'd heard, I'd seen that he had done other podcasts and interviews. So I thought, well, I'll just reach out and see if he's interested. And he said, yes, I think it took a little, like a couple, I had to like, Hey, are you, are you, you still want to do it? Like, can you do it this? And then he's like, okay, yeah, yeah, let's do it. So then he finally agreed. And uh, I was definitely like nervous the first time I interviewed him. Cause I was like, this is weird. I mean, this is a guy who I had the trickster CDs. I was a trickster fan. One of my favorite bands, dude. Yeah. And, and again, this was back in Seattle in the nineties. And I, but I loved it. I, I thought they were so great. Very, you know, a little poppy, but, but good stuff. Hey man, trickster were the forerunners of bringing flannel shirts into yeah, hard rock. That's right. PJ Farley. Yeah. They, what they, they joke about how the, they hung themselves with the flannels or whatever, but, but yeah, so I was nervous and I remember doing that and, uh, and I'm thinking, Oh, this is, this was fun. This is cool. And then, um, I sent it, I sent the article to sleaze rocks thinking, Oh, maybe they'll, they'll do a story about some of this stuff we talked about. Dude, the sleaze rock guy, he loved it. He was, he, he did five articles on that interview and I was just like blown away. I was like, what is it? Like me and Mark were like, we're like, just like baffled. We're like, I can't believe there's another article. Like every time there'd be a new one, we're like, there's another article from this interview. Like it was just, I don't know if so maybe they, they were big uh, trickster fans too, or what kind of blew me away that the, the press that I got for that first one. I mean, even be, seeing my name on sleaze rocks was weird because I followed that site, I think since the nineties or, or a long time time that it had been up and I'd always like check back and see, you know, what was going on in that kind of world. That was a way to kind of keep in touch after metal edge kind of dropped off. It was like, that was kind of the, one of the ways to keep up with what was going on in the hair metal world was these rocks. So it was cool to, to see our interview out there. Were there any things you learned pretty fast early on about what to do and perhaps more importantly, what not to do when it comes to interviews? <laughs> yeah. I mean, God, yeah, there's so many, I mean, early on, I would say, Gosh, that's, that's, that's a really, I'm trying to remember now because early on, I think thing I learned right away, I think it was just like my natural instinct was to really like prepare and do research for the interviews. And I learned that the guests really like that. You know, if you, if you are prepared and you know about them, you know, their history, you've listened to interviews. So, you know, questions that they're sick of asking or answering. I think that really helped. So I think I learned that pretty quick because the guests would be like, wow, like you really did your research. And so that's kind of like a, an ego rub of like, oh, okay. Like I did something good. Like, you know, I wasn't getting that working in the schools and stuff. I wasn't getting a lot of those like attaboys. So it's kind of nice to hear that from the guests. So that was one thing I learned that was like a, something that I was doing right. And then in terms of things that I was doing wrong, probably just a lot of like production technical stuff, like probably add the theme song and stuff later, do a little bit of more editing and post-production, you know, with sound things like getting the sound, the mics right and things like that. And then doing the phone calls, you know, that's always tricky sometimes. Now I could, we do Zoom. It's a lot easier. But in the beginning, I was doing like the phone calls with the Bluetooth and a lot of the technical types of things. But um, and then as time goes on, I feel like my interview style has evolved a little bit more. And so I'm not all my research and prep work and trying to kind of be more natural sometimes and just follow like down the rabbit hole. Yeah. You can just go turn left all of a sudden when you plan to turn right. Yeah. Like when they bring up something, they're like, well, yeah, it's like that time that I got into a fight with David Lee Roth. You're like, well, you know, that might not be on your list, but you're talking about a fight with David Lee Roth. Like, 
like you better follow that rabbit hole and figure out what, what happened there your research level like I say it's friggin next level dude i think the first interview i heard of yours was the one with eric turner oh god i remember thinking damn this guy's good like i thought i knew a lot of warrant stuff but there's like about five or six topics like i've never heard about that before some of the stuff you ask is crazy i have no idea where you find it. i think when i'm like googling for question ideas i do a pretty good job but some of the stuff you come up with is like insane you can tell from the guest response too that they're impressed for me it's just like it's natural like once i start getting into the interview it's like i just snowball like i just okay i got i'm gonna I'll, I'll you know google a few things about this person and then i'm like and then i just go down this rabbit hole i just start i just like become addicted to like okay i gotta find out more i gotta get more i gotta get and i start listening to podcasts and youtube interviews and googling and i just try to find as much as I, it's kind of like a game it's kind of fun for me and so and especially when it's like eric turner warrant i mean i just i loved warrant so much They're like one of my favorite bands so everything about them is like is just fascinating to me i so it was it was that that one was a lot of fun and yeah the one thing I think that we got press on that was that that he had kind of uh, auditioned for Megadeth yeah th- I think that was one of the things I that was, was like, crazy I think even Eric was like how did you know about that yeah I, well because I think I heard him talking about it in an interview and I was like what I I've never heard this and I even told the guy who did the interview I can't remember who it was now but I reached I messaged him and I was like dude I didn't know that thing about Megadeth and and then the guy was like I don't remember that interview because it you know it'd been a long time for him too but it's cool to to find those kinds of things and now with the internet you know. It's like you can find the stuff on the internet or if it's not on the internet, now it will be because it's in a podcast. And then, you know, if Blabbermouth picks it up or whatever. Which is your favorite Warrant album? I got to ask. Ooh, that's a good question. Yeah, I think probably, probably Cherry Pie. But I mean, I really, the first three, Dirty Rotten, Filthy Singing Rich. I mean, that's a great album. The Cherry Pie is great. I also really like the Doggy Dog. I didn't like it when it came out. You didn't? No. You know why? I think the only reason is, because I love it now. This is going to sound really... I don't know what the word is, but the image of the band was such a contrast from Cherry Pie, where every photo shoot you saw them, they were happy and yeah, and all of a sudden it was just all black leather, mean and moody. Janie's got his hair pulled back in a ponytail and all this kind of thing. I was like, right, it was yeah, it was a little bit. I'd be curious to know if they didn't go that route, if they stayed on the cherry. You know, he said, I remember in the interviews he would say, I didn't want to make Cherry Pie two, but I kind of wonder what if he did. <laughs> I'm just curious, like what that what it would. Have sounded like, or maybe like more of a slight departure from Cherry Pie, because I feel like the first record and Cherry Pie are pretty different. You know, I think there's definitely a different sound on those first two. I'd be curious if you, if they didn't go as far as Dog Eat Dog, you know, because some of the songs on Dog Eat Dog could have fit on Cherry Pie. You know, a few of those songs. So what if they had done more like that? No, it's still a great album. I, I grew to love yeah, it. I, I do like that one though a lot, though. That's great. So you're pretty ruthless too in your interviews. You don't have any fear. <laughs> Really? Yeah, I'm not the biggest fan in pushing people for like specific details as much as I want. You just kind of dive in there. <laughs> do so, I? Where, where does that do come? Do I do that? Yeah, I don't know. I didn't know I did that. Give me an example. When was I ruthless? Even on that Paul Gargano one this morning, like he'll start talking on some Jerry Miller thing and he won't go into the specifics and you'll you'll push him <laughs> for the specific. It's great. Yeah, it's just like again, I was you know I was a counselor for 17 years, so I was telling my girlfriend this the other day, like there's nothing that I could hear that's going to shock me. Like I've heard it all. I've heard, you know, everything. I mean, you think of anything like child abuse, incest, rape, you know, drugs, 
business and all that kind of stuff. I've heard all those stories and I've talked to people and worked through that with them. So there's nothing that like, you know, a guy in a rock band is going to tell me that's really going to shock me that much. So I don't feel, yeah, I, I guess I don't really have the fear. Perhaps don't realize you're doing it. So I guess I think it's a comfort level thing. So I think for a lot of people that that do this, you know, they're just fans of the band and, and their background may be in engineering or probably not used to having really deep conversations with people. So it's a little, it feels a little more uncomfortable. Like, and when I first started, I was a counselor, that kind of stuff. Definitely. It was weird to talk about that. I was like, you know, especially with a stranger, you don't know this person, but after you've done it so long, it's just like, and a lot of people like to tell me, you know, their deep, dark secrets. Like I just, I think I just have that kind of personality that I'm kind of laid back and easy to talk to, I hope. And so I think a lot of people will tell me that kind of stuff. But now, yeah, I also, I, I have found myself pushing a little bit more too. I think it's great. I wish I could do it. Yeah. I want to get the good story because, and I think that's the other thing is right now with the podcast, and I think I talked to you about this a little bit off air, uh, just how there's so many podcasts popping up. I feel like every week there's some new guy in a new podcast with a guy in a black t-shirt and long hair and glasses. Like it's like almost every week there's a new one. And I'm like, oh my gosh. Like, so, which is good because I think it pushes everyone to do their best. And so it's definitely pushing me to put out good content and try to stand out. Like last week I interviewed Junkyard, the band Junkyard, and I was their third interview. And that's insane to me. I'm like, this is a band that I liked and I think they're underrated for sure. But the fact that they have three interviews in a week is like, that's crazy to me. So I've got to stand, I mean, even the most diehard Junkyard fan, I don't know that they're going to listen to three interviews in one week with the band. So somehow my interviews got to stand out. So, um, you know, I talked about that, that stuff with the singer, how he was homeless and stuff, you know, that that's tough thing to talk. It was, it was uncomfortable for me to talk about, but I thought, you know, this is a, something that we need to, to bring up because it's an important part of what, what's going on. And he was open. He talked about another interview. So I knew he was open to talking about it. And, um, um, and then sure enough, we got uh, an article on Sleaze Rocks and that got a lot of, a lot of press for that. And, um, you know, I hope it didn't, I hope they're not mad about that, but I think it was like cool that we brought it, you know, that issue. I think it's a deeper thing about how bands are not able to survive right now during this pan. They're struggling. Like that's a lot of working musicians are struggling. And that's, I thought that was cool that the singer, uh, David was open about it and saying like, dude, I'm struggling right now. Cause I can't tour. I can't do shows. There's a pandemic. So yeah. Has anybody contacted you? Like after you've done the in- interview, slept on it for a while. Like, oh shit, did I really say that? <laughs> Best kind of nip that in the bud. Like they want me to cut something out. Yeah. I shouldn't have said that. Yeah. I've had a, uh, yeah, just recently that happened. Uh, I had one where somebody asked me to, to cut out this whole section where we talked about uh, Marilyn Manson. And I was like, oh yeah, we can, we can cut that out. And then I, I looked back on it. I was like, yeah, that's probably, I probably didn't say the right. You, you got to be so careful. So something that's like, yeah, let's just cut that out. And, um, I had a comedian one time talking about Louis CK, like an hour, a couple hours later. He's like, can you take that Louis CK part out? He's like, I've, I feel like that's just not good. I was like, yeah, okay. And it, it kind of sucks. Cause it's like, sometimes that stuff is like, so it's so juicy, you know, and it's like so interesting. <laughs> and, but I get it. I get it. Cause like, I, they don't want to screw up their reputations. And I totally respect that. I, I would never put something in there that they don't want in there. And at the same time, it's like, well, I got to hear it. So that's kind of cool. And finally, who's on your hit list for dream interviews for dream interviews. Yeah. I mean, like, so like I said, Skid Row, that was like one of my first bands that I really got into. So definitely Sebastian Bach. I mean, I've interviewed Rachel and that was amazing. He is, I, he's super cool. And he's the guy that pretty much the architect of most of those songs that wrote them and stuff. So that's a huge piece. But I mean, Sebastian Bach, I mean, he sang them and he- You've met Sebastian before though, right? I've met him a couple of times. Yeah. He was really nice to me, really cool. And just a funny, I think he would be such a good interview too. I think he's just such a character and I'm such a fan. I feel like it would, we'd have a good chemistry. I think it would be a good interview. Um, and then, but my ultimate would be 
besides Sebastian would be Axel Rose. I think that would be amazing. And he never does interviews, but I think, like you said, like I could be kind of ruthless, but I think like, I think that could work well with him because, you know, like my counseling background, I mean, I think you got to be careful with a guy like that because you don't want to piss him off. But I think I, I would, I think I could do it. I don't know. I think it'd be a really good interview. It would definitely be, uh, definitely be a big one. That's for sure. Block out two weeks before for all your research. Oh, I would. Yeah. <laughs> you would go down I would do like hole. a month of research. And I mean, a lot of it, I already know. Cause I, I already just do the research. He's just fascinating. I don't know if you saw the, the latest, the thing on the reels channel. Um, what is it? Breaking the band, I think, about Axl Rose. It was so good. You should check that out. Because you kind of find out what was going on during that time where he was kind of like just not doing anything. Well, thank you for this, dude. Congratulations dude, on thank smashing you. 100 episodes. Yeah, thanks for having This is amazing. This is fun. Like, I cool to actually talk to you in sort of real life. I mean, I, I we message on the internet and stuff and you comment on my stuff. I comment on yours, but it's cool to actually see your face and everything. It's very cool. Well, you enjoy the rest of your day. It's been great. All right, to speak you too. To you. Thanks, man. All right, man. Take it easy. I'll speak to you soon. All righty. Bye-bye. Many thanks to my friend Chuck Shute for checking in with me from Arizona, USA, and it really was a lot of fun to chat after listening to his shows for such a long time. His no-holds-barred approach when talking to guests really is inspiring, so if you enjoyed our talk, be sure to find the Chuck Shute podcast wherever you listen to your shows. The guy is everywhere. For me, it means a lot that you continue to listen and support this show. Don't forget, we now have our own dedicated website at simplystvpod.com where you can listen to all earlier episodes, check out some straight-to-video music and videos, and there's also a merch store where you can pick up the latest straight-to-video t-shirt. If you would like to support the show that little bit more, then I've set up a support page where you can buy me a coffee. Simply click on the buy me a coffee button and you can send a small donation of your choice, which goes towards the growing of the show and continuing to improve on equipment to help make it even better for you, the listener. Log on to stvpod.com for all the info. Really hope you enjoyed this episode and I can tell you the next few shows are going to be through the roof with the chats I've got in the bag. So make sure to like, follow and share wherever you listen so you don't miss a single episode. Thanks so much. You guys are the best and I look forward to talking to you all again real soon. Mm -hmm.